I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. Fentanyl isn't just causing more overdoses. It's also making it harder to initiate addiction treatment. Speaking with us today to that very topic is Dr. Sarah Kawasaki, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Director of Addiction Services at the Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute, which is part of Penn State University. So tell us about this troubling trend, fentanyl and initiating treatment. You've actually called this the clinical challenge of your career. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to meet you. Fentanyl really came to the area where I practice between 2015 and 2016. And in addition to noting an increase in overdose deaths, I noticed that individuals could not initiate buprenorphine as easily as they once did when they were using heroin. What do I mean by that? The typical induction algorithm is on the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration website. It basically says allow for 8 to 12 hours to go by before a patient starts feeling a little bit of withdrawal symptoms, so not frank withdrawal, but maybe some watery eyes and runny nose. And at that point, you can start 4 milligrams of buprenorphine naloxone. And after an hour or two, you can take an extra 4 milligrams in some some earlier algorithms, they would say no more than eight milligrams on day one, and then you can increase the amount of buprenorphine each day by four milligrams until you get to a dose where an individual's cravings are extinguished and they can go about their lives and feel more normal or at least not sick from withdrawal. When this change happened with illicit opioids, I noticed that patients would come back within two or three days saying that they were unable to start it, that the medication made them feel really sick. So I would try different approaches, maybe smaller doses, maybe bigger doses, and ultimately they became frustrated. And if they didn't leave or, in other words, were not lost follow-up, I would initiate them all on methadone. And I'm lucky in the sense that I am medical director of an opioid treatment program, and so we have methadone to offer, but methadone is a highly regulated substance to treat opioid use disorder that requires a very specific environment to dispense it. When you have two treatments that are truly evidence-based for opioid use disorder in this context, to have one so highly regulated with so many barriers put up for it. So taking a step back, this specific observation has been over the last, what, five to seven years with the rise of fentanyl. Can we measure this phenomena? How common is this? It's hard to measure. It's hard to explain. It is actually a topic of active investigation. Scientists are working to poll prescribers to see how common it is in their practice across the country, this phenomenon of getting sick from taking buprenorphine in response to using fentanyl. There are other studies that are going on in which they're finding that individuals are not reporting precipitated withdrawal or withdrawal symptoms, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not happening because a lot of individuals are bringing it up to their physicians, and now people are walking into offices requesting methadone or being afraid to start buprenorphine. So it's not entirely scientifically proven that this is the case. What is happening now is patients are showing up having heard it probably and then they decline to try buprenorphine. 
it brings up a very important point. I think it would be very helpful if you could explain the notion of a failed induction, because I think that's what we're seeing. But as the X waiver has been reversed, I know many doctors who are getting into the Suboxone treatment business because it's a good source of money for them. They get paid well. I'm not quite so sure they know what they're doing. Not to the level of sophistication. They have enough sophistication to be able to prescribe it, but not to really understand the nuances of what we're talking about here. I see that as one layer of the problem. Could you explain, again, what's been called failed induction? What's going wrong here? Why are so many people having problems? That's a great multi-step question, and there's a lot to unpack. So the first question is about initiation, induction or initiation. I like to use the word initiation because it sounds a little less intimidating. What I mean by failed initiation is multiple attempts to start the medicine with either an adverse reaction or just inability to continue the medication due to unpleasant physical symptoms than the desire to just go back and use what they were using anyway. They knew that it would make them feel better. It's not clear exactly what's driving it. A question of setting appropriate expectations for the patient so that they know what to expect. It may be that patients need medications that are typically given for withdrawal symptoms and withdrawal symptom management in addition to buprenorphine initiation so that you're not just giving them buprenorphine, you're also giving them medications to help with body aches and runny nose and nausea and cramping. It would be start a medicine that have not resulted in successful initiation. Physicians or prescribers, the removal of the X waiver is really only a good thing in the sense that the pharmacokinetic understanding of a partial agonist is clearly explained enough in school for different credentialing to understand how it works. I think there needs to be additional training instead on full agonist opioids, you know, the medication out there that, that caused this problem to begin with, instead of putting the barrier up the medication that saves lives. So I'm glad of that. I don't think it's going to increase capacity in a meaningful way until we can all be connected. We know that when there were X waivers, very few people underwent the training to get their X waiver. And those who did, very few people were actually prescribing to any patients, let alone to the capacity of their X waiver. Taking away the X waiver, it's removing a lot of barriers to get people started. What also needs to happen, I think, is coordinated mentorship, coordinated training, and a way for prescribers to stay connected with experts so that when they do have questions. That, I think, will be the way to do this work meaningfully. I also want to say that a lot of buprenorphine prescribers are operating in a vacuum. And by that, I mean they are siloed from individuals who may be boarded in addiction medicine, individuals who work at opioid treatment programs. Really, in order to do this work well, you have to be able to know where patients should go if they don't succeed at the level of care you're practicing. Without that specialty, or subspecialty referral in place, it's a rocky situation. You would start somebody on insulin unless you knew the number of an endocrinologist. I just want to make the point that individuals who are using fentanyl who desire treatment should be viewed as individuals with unstable chest pain. 
these are individuals who at any moment could drop dead. That they are asking for treatment is nothing short of life-saving intervention. If they're given medication that constantly makes them sick, you want to make sure as a prescriber, they can initiate medication for opioid disorder that will dramatically lower their risk for overdose and death in the short term. What makes fentanyl different? Fentanyl is an opioid that is 100 times as potent as heroin. It has a short half-life. That half-life is actually a little deceptive. It surprised me that individuals who would tell me that they stopped using fentanyl two, three, four days before still experience problems initiating buprenorphine. There's a lot trying to explain all of that. And part of that is the known lipophilicity of fentanyl makes it possible that it's not being eliminated from the body in a linear fashion that it can be stored in fat cells and maybe released upon being triggered by a partial agonist like buprenorphine. It binds very tightly to the mu opioid receptor. In addition to being a powerful opioid with a quick half-life and a lot of reinforcing hormones that are released like dopamine to continue that behavior, I Individuals who are using fentanyl and are tolerant to fentanyl, you'll find, are using quite a lot throughout the day. So it is a challenge to knock out the fentanyl from the mu opioid receptor, either with naloxone or with buprenorphine. Those reasons are a likely explanation, although it's not entirely known why fentanyl is as devastating as it has been. How much more frequent is this problem, would you say, in your experience because of the increased amount of fentanyl? And certainly I can tell you my experience, I supervise a wound care clinic with a needle exchange program here. Everybody's using fentanyl. Hardly anyone is using heroin anymore. It's all fentanyl. How much more common is this problem with the precipitated withdrawal? And because of that, how much more challenging is it to encourage physicians, even with dropping the X waiver, to be part of the process in initiating treatment or encouraging their patients to initiate? It's a two-part question. Individuals who are using fentanyl, for me, it's been close to 80% of my patients who have trouble. I have my own set of biases because I work out of an opioid treatment program. I want to make sure that people initiate on medicine if possible. And so if they can't get on buprenorphine right away, I want to make sure that they get on methadone right away. I may be a little less tolerant of what the patient is experiencing in order to lower the barrier to get them on medicine. That said, prior to fentanyl, I had no trouble getting people on buprenorphine generally. Maybe I had like one or two who the buprenorphine didn't agree with them well or they didn't like the taste or something, but it was never, I got so sick and hot and sweaty and I threw up and I had diarrhea. It was never a full constellation of symptoms. I feel like almost all the time now. Should this discourage other prescribers from getting into the buprenorphine business? It should not. And the reason for that is there are many different kinds of patients. People come in with opioid use disorder who have been buprenorphine off the street. 
And so they're already on buprenorphine. Individuals may have not used in a couple days and they may come into the office and they're experiencing a lot of withdrawal symptoms. In that case, it's really easy to start them on higher dose buprenorphine to get their symptoms under control. Most importantly, is having a prescriber be comfortable with addiction treatment in general and to know where to send patients if they don't feel comfortable doing this specific treatment. The most important thing to make sure that these folks get access to treatment, whether it's from them or from somebody else. Addiction is a chronic brain illness. It is an illness that hijacks the mesocorticolimbic tracts. It is a illness that is largely based on extreme craving that prevents people from being able to engage in their tasks of daily living. Because it is a chronic illness, there are individuals who may need buprenorphine for the rest of their lives. This is common. Sometimes you see individuals with hypertension, suddenly they cut out all the salt in their diet and they hop on the treadmill and they can reverse their need for medication. But all too often, we'll see that individuals will take medication to lower their blood pressure and they'll need to be on it for the rest of their lives and it will help them avoid the deleterious consequences of not being on high blood pressure meds. Similarly, buprenorphine is a treatment that is proven to save lives in addition to methadone. It keeps the deleterious consequences of overdose and maybe not engaging with your family, not engaging with work. Being on those medicines for life can sometimes heal those things. There are the small minority of patients who are able to not need the medicines anymore. But in general, it really should be thought of as a chronic illness and the stigma behind the treatment for addiction really needs to stop. Why Suboxone versus methadone? We're going to look at it apples to apples. It's actually in the way that it's delivered would be the reason to choose one over the other. I don't think you can really separate the pharmacokinetic and the specific characteristics of each med from how it's administered. Buprenorphine can be administered by injection now for a month at a time. Sometimes that can help people be a little more flexible in their treatment, certainly for people who are in sustained recovery. If they live far away from treatment, it's very convenient. For other individuals, buprenorphine is incredibly compatible with any other chronic condition and work and family in that you can get the medicine from your doctor's office around the corner. Methadone generally is associated with a higher level of care in this country. Opioid treatment program is something that some individuals may need. It comes with a counseling requirement. There are other levels of care within different opioid treatment programs, such as intensive outpatient. Those treatments are sometimes needed. Always important to individualize treatment. People come to treatment centers with lots of different backgrounds and stories. So it's important to listen to what they want, how they envision their recovery, and how we can help them. In light of the changes because of the fentanyl, how have the protocols been adjusted? Is there really a specific protocol, or are we just kind of trying all kinds of different things still at this point? So up to now, everything has been trial by fire. It's been a little artisanal. Everybody's got their method. Some people are in the low dose or microdosing bandwagon, and some people are in the high dose or macrodosing bandwagon. Now, the American Society of Addiction Medicine is coming out with a series of possible alternative treatment algorithms. 
it is an active area of investigation. I think the most important thing to do is to outline what it would look like with your patient in the room so that they know what to expect. What we're going to do today is I'm going to write you for some comfort meds and we're going to try this high dose method or we're going to try this low dose method. See you back in three days because I want to know how you did. It's really important to see them within the week of starting something like this so that if you need to send them to an opioid treatment program or inpatient or something, you have a way of following up with them quickly. Buprenorphine initiation for individuals using fentanyl are a little less predictable. Clearly, this is very challenging for a clinician, particularly a clinician whose full-time job is not taking care of people suffering from addiction. Bridging methods, you would bridge it with a fentanyl or buprenorphine patch. What would you recommend to a physician who is just getting into this arena? If they are presented with a patient that may be outside of their comfort zone, phone a friend or know an expert. There are different levels of mentorship. One of the levels of mentorship is actually on my virtual background right now, Project Echo. This is a free virtual seminar led by a team of experts and our case base. Individuals who join ECHO cohorts are invited to share cases, and they are networked with 20 other prescribers in their area in addition to the experts. So if they have questions about a case, they can get answers, immediate support. There are many Project ECHOs running throughout the country for medications with opioid use disorder. Google Medication for Opioid Use Disorder or Project ECHO. Free continuing medical education credits. It's a complicated situation. It's important for physicians to not to work out of silos, which you've mentioned before. The, the interaction is critically important. One challenge that I've noted repeatedly amongst people who use drugs, they've been through the initiation of treatment multiple times. They are resistant to going back for more. And particularly with this fentanyl situation, how do we deal with that? I think it's important to ask detailed questions. Why? I think it's important to get down to why. Sometimes there are prescribers who may stigmatize their patients. These are already vulnerable individuals. For whatever reason, they're given a, a hard time at their clinic. They're not going to want to go back. It's important to know why. And then if you yourself, familiar local providers, you can say, can I make a recommendation to go somewhere else and make sure that you're treated with dignity? That's one approach. Another reason might be that they don't like buprenorphine. In that case, talking to them about methadone. Have you thought about methadone treatment? Trouble is with addiction treatment in this country, the treatment is so stigmatized. Both patients and prescribers have feelings about these medications. Everybody has opinions on buprenorphine or methadone, and it's not okay. These medicines are life-saving. People are dying. Helping patients disentangle stigma. A lot of myths with methadone. Answer some questions for them that they may have about it. And then knowing where to send them. I love it when community physicians reach out to me. I know that opioid treatment programs have counselors on site. Our counselors also do case management. Case managers can help them with housing. They can help them with food. They can help them with other solutions on the hierarchy of need. 
that can be a motivator. You just never know where a person is coming from when they say, I don't want to go back there. Just sort out what the reason is, get to the bottom of it and help them solve it so that they can put their best foot forward again. They told me to come back in three days when I'm in withdrawal. A number of programs don't want to house the patients waiting for the appropriate moment. And they go, I'm ready today. They don't take me today. So these are outpatient programs or inpatient programs? It's outpatient programs. You should look for low barrier substance use disorder programs. Low barrier programs are same day or within 24 hours or 48 hours to get folks started on medicine. Sometimes emergency departments will start folks on medicine. There should be no hesitation to send folks to emergency rooms if you know that they are starting folks on buprenorphine. You know, this is somebody with unstable chest pain, right? They're going to go out, they might use, and they might die. Another thing that you can do is write for buprenorphine yourself. As a part of that legislation, the federal legislation, dropping the X waiver, but now there's a required eight-hour course. In Palm Beach County, we have an addiction stabilization unit at uh, one of the hospitals specifically set up for that. And that, of course, is the place where we most frequently say, this is where you need to go. So frequently, we hear all the excuses. So I wonder on some level how much of this is because of the patient population just not really wanting to make that commitment. And yet it's a place that is specifically set up with a focus on any aspect of addiction. We live in a country where treatment is not mandated and people can do whatever they want. We can make a difference to make sure that folks who want treatment can get it. Even folks, they'll give you stories. You may feel like, ah, eh, this is them kind of skirting and not being ready. I think having a canned statement along the lines of, hey, I hear what you're saying. Forgive me. I am a professional worrier. I am literally paid to worry and I have a natural talent for it. And I am worried that you are going to go out there and use and die. I care about you. Please let me know if I can help in any way to get you into treatment. I am here for you. It's sort of the best that you can do. And I'm constantly surprised by who is listening and who is not. It's usually the people who are giving me the lip service of recovery that are the ones that aren't really doing what I think they're going to do. The words you say really matter. The window in which to catch patients who want treatment and are actively seeking treatment so vanishingly small that you just want to be present when they are returning to start treatment. Nobody at their core wants to keep using making sure that they know that you're there for them when they want it is the most important thing. Dr. Sarah Kawasaki is Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Director of Addiction Services at the Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute. Sarah, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me.